Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, James Spender, and joining me today is none other than Mr. William Strickson. How are you doing, Will? I'm good. No one's ever introduced me with none other so far in my life, so I'm pleased that you were the first one. Really? Um, well, that's, I mean, that's wonderful. I've met, well, I mean, I don't know any other Will Strickson, so it sort of is true. Unfortunately, there is one other that I know of, and don't Google, because it's not very nice. Oh, really? I'm going to Google him. Do you know... There's one. There's, there's lots of Jane Spenders, right? But back in the day, I found one on Facebook. We became friends because I tried to friend every person called Spender I could find because I thought it was a slightly unusual name. And then at a point in time when you, Amazon wish lists were available to the public, my auntie found James Spender online and she bought him, me, an economics book, which was James Spender's. And then this guy went, have you got an auntie called Joss? And I was like, I do actually, mate. And he's like, yeah, she just sent me a book on economics. That was on my Amazon wish list. I was like, ah, oh, that's funny. He was like, yeah, it was my birthday the other day. So she'd found him. And he was such a decent bloke. He went, oh, don't worry about it. I'll send you 20 quid. So he sent me 20 quid. And guess what the most mental thing is? His dad, right, is called Anthony Spender. And my dad is called Anthony Spender. And my dad is an old man, so he uses Facebook because old people use Facebook. He saw this connection. He found out this guy's dad was called Anthony. He messaged Anthony. And at some point in time, him and my mum went and had lunch with Anthony Spender. <laughs> so there you go. That's the internet a few years ago. It's a bit more of a crowded place these days. Um, and that has nothing to do with um, our show today. So I would like to pass it back over to you, Will, to get a bit of uh, some sane hands on, on what is going on in this episode and tell us who we've got and what he's talking about. I've just given it away a little bit because it is, it is a dude. It is a dude. Here's a, here's a dude. Uh, it's, he is a dude. It's Adam Hansen, not former footballer who said you can't win anything with kids and not uh, related to uh, Mbop family. Um, former pro cyclist, has the record for the most consecutive Grand Tours completed. That's a bit of a mouthful, but he did 20 back to back to back to back to back to back. Um, yeah, including stage wins at the Giro and the Vuelta, National Time Trial Championship, all sorts of helped all sorts of people to stage wins, including Mark Cavendish, Andre Greipel, done Ironman post retirement, done all sorts of other sports, which he will talk about. He will also talk about nutrition, being a vegan, which he got yeah. onto at the end, which is really interesting. Um, and he talks a lot about his current role, which is the president of the CPA, which is the Riders Union, which James, how do you say CPA in French? Uh, CPA. <laughs> Will, how do you say CPA? What does CPA stand for? And how would you pronounce it? It stands for the Cyclist Professionnel Associé. Ah, very good. I mean, 
we did actually kind of try and practice that a little bit um, off there. And in, in so doing, realized that I only got to be a GCSE French um, or modern foreign languages, as it was called. Will, you did A-level, what'd you get? I'm not sure. I think I got an A. There you go. It was on the border of A and B. On the border. Was that back in, was that when those A-level years, but A-levels were really easy because the government was trying to get people to get better grades so that we all look better? Yeah, of course. The ones that I did a good grade was definitely when they made it easy. I'm sure you just you believe that. I believe James. that. Yeah, it's tough. It's much tougher in my day, much <laughs> tougher. Um, anyway, well, that's yeah, that that's that's all true. Adam is on the podcast. Adam is a dude, and we cover all of that and more. So, without further ado, let's welcome to the podcast, Mr. Adam Hansen. So welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Mr. Adam Hansen. Adam, you are fascinating to me for many reasons, but number one, you're an Australian who's gravitated towards Europe, and I believe you're calling in from the Czech Republic or Czechia, as it's now called, is that right? That's right. Um, I live in Czech Republic or Czechia, depending um, if you wanted the updated version of the country's name, that no one really knows that it's called that. Um, but yes, I'm living in Czech Republic at the moment. And, and how did you end up in somewhere that I think probably right now is potentially very snowy, having come from, you were born and raised in Queensland, is that right? I've been to Queensland. It is, it is fiercely hot um, and there's lovely seaside. Yes, yeah, so um, you're right. I was born in Queensland. Um, it is very hot there in the summer. At the moment here, we have full snow and you have to shovel the driveway just to get out of your house. Well, actually, you've got to shovel from your house to your car just to get to your car. <clears throat> um, we've got lots of snow here. Um, I ended up here because I, I started racing originally in Austria for an amateur team. And then I was rowed for a few continental teams in Austria. And then I had a partner just across the border. So Austria borders uh, Czech Republic. And then I moved to Czech Republic, I think back in 2004. And I've just stayed here ever since. And I really had no real reason. Like as a professional, you can live anywhere and you just got to be near an airport. I liked it here because there's mountains to train on. I love the winter because it's proper winter. So when you're training here, you can go cross-country skiing, you can go hiking, you can go on the fat bike, you can ride. And it's not wet, you know. Some, a lot of the countries in, in Europe in the winter, it just rains and it's, it's horrible to ride in rain, as everyone knows, where snow is dry um, and you can get some good training here. So it's perfect in the winter, it's perfect in the summer. There's mountains here, there's airports close by. And for me, it was a great uh, yeah, uh, location to be a professional cyclist. Yeah. What did your um, old team managers and DSs think of you doing stuff in the off-season like skiing? Because I know that in other sports, skiing is like the absolute no-no because it's got a very high um, rate of, of carnage. <laughs> One funny story actually was um, when I was riding, I think it was for T-Mobile, oh, no, uh, High Road, and the, the, the team wouldn't send me a, um, a set of wheels, so I had no wheels. And, I, and it was like February or March, and I was just doing hiking and cross-country skiing and that. And, and we had this new super coach called Sebastian Weber. Maybe you've heard about him. And uh, the, the sports directors found out that I wasn't riding my bike. All I was doing was hiking and cross-country skiing. And then we had this race, and I forgot the name of the race, but I was the strongest from the team. And it was just Tony Martin and I in front, and and we were we were minutes in front, and we we're going to get first and second. But then I had a flat tire, and they wanted to give me the win because I was the strongest. But I had a flat tire, I think two k before the finish, and they wanted a photo of us together. So because I had a flat tire, they said, "Okay, we'll give the win to Tony Martin." 
and then I got second. And then um, everyone was like, oh, we're going to stop for training on the bike. We're going to do cross-country skiing and, and, and then hiking because it was doing so well. And the DSs, were, they, they were a bit against it and they went to Sebastian Weber and Sebastian Weber was like, no, this is the perfect off-season training. They, you know, we encourage riders to do this, um, not just to ride the bike because they're training, you know, core muscles and, and, and different muscles that are not used and, and he fully supported it. And the sports directors were like, they were a bit um, put off, like that's not the answer you're meant to give us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, the, the old traditional, let's say, DSs and coaches don't like it, but the... Yeah, the, the new cultures, they have no problem with it. You probably had quite a lot of that over your career because it spanned so long and the eras were quite different when you started and finished. Was that one of the bigger things, sort of the modernization of sort of fitness ideas that you noticed or were there other things like drug-related or something that might have gone in the background? Yeah, definitely. There was a huge shift and, I, and I'll have to say that um, HTC was probably the, 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 the team that sort of started this um, different type of training protocols and that. Yeah, it was really, you know, uh, a lot of off-the-bike training, a lot of core training, uh, a lot of more attention to detail. And I, I probably turned professional maybe maybe two years after, let's say, I don't want to say the doping era, but that was the reason why I got a contract is because 2006 T-Mobile team was pretty much wiped off. Um, they had the whole team pretty much cleared except for, I think, four riders or something. And then the, the change was like, okay, we got to get young guys, guys with a, a different mindset, um, guys that ate healthy, that trained very Pacific, did off-the-bike training, and they were the first team to really change the way of the direction of how cycling was going. And in some sense, I was, I was blessed in this because that gave me the opportunity to get a contract in the team because they needed 25 riders, um, so that was very good for me. And, yeah, that, that, that was the first team that really focused on proper serious training, nutrition, uh, core training, that, and then we became, yeah, one of the most successful teams ever in two years' time following those protocols. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what, what was it about T-Mobile, which then ended up being HTC, HTC High Road, there was a Columbia thrown in there, I can't keep up with all the sponsors, but you look at that team roster, I was just going on um, PCS the other day, and looking at the, the guys that you're riding with in 2007 and onwards, and you had people like Tony Martin, Andre Greipel, you had Wiggins, you had Cavendish, obviously, and at the time, those were all you know young blokes, probably early 20s, maybe even a teen here and there. Did you know that you were sort of mixing it with these giants? Did it feel like this is going to be something special? Or did it feel like we're just a bit of a renegade bunch who need to take up all these seats? Because as you say, the previous team fell apart, so we just got to get some bums on chairs. Yeah, you're right. When you look back and you look at the team photo, they're all superstars. Like every, like there was probably three riders that weren't a superstar. And, and just to say, the main reason why that team was so successful was because the type of riders they got were sprinters and time trialers. And I remember one year we had, I think, seven national TT champions as, as time trials. <clears throat> so we were super strong on the flat. We did super good lead outs. We had Cavendish, Chiluk, um, Greipel um, as our sprinters. So running the two programs, yeah, these guys won everything. Cav won all the big races. Scrabble had more wins at the smaller races. But, where, yeah, when you look back, um, <clears throat> yeah, we had Tour de France winners, Wiggins. Uh, we had Kim Kirken. I think he was second at the Tour one year or third in the Tour one year. Yeah, it was a bit sur surreal. At the time, I guess I didn't notice it so much. Um, but when you look back where their careers went, um, there was definitely very good recruiting on, 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 on the team back then. 
Did it feel like, you know, looking back on it now, did you feel there was something special in the management? Because there's two names that stick out to me. There's Brian Holm and Alan Piper. And Alan is a compatriot of yours. He's not ex-Australian pro, but he is often touted in the cycling media, at least, as being the kind of mastermind behind um, Pogacar's tour wins at UAE. But he's working with you guys um, back in those in the, in the late 2000s. And so is Brian Holm. And Brian Holm, Holm has gone on um, to be this kind of almost sort of very lovable puppet master at Quick Step, bringing Cavendish back in. I mean, he's he's effectively the guy that's got our you know our best and greatest British rider back on the road and looking for his 36th tour win. How important are managers like that to riders such as yourself? Yeah, extremely important, especially Alan Piper. Alan Piper was um, he. Alan Piper's the guy that looks like four to five years down the track, um, and this is this is super important for a team. And when they did the recruiting, um, yeah, they definitely did a good job. Uh, and not only did they do a good job for the team at the time, but you, when you saw where those riders went in their careers, yeah, Alan and Brian Holm did a yeah spectacular job in, in foreseeing that. And this is this is um, this is very important for the team in the long term future. But also, what I noticed was is they did it in a different way today. Like what I see today is is Let's say back back in HTC uh, High Road, they picked a, a whole group of riders that would develop into stars, um, and they knew their potential and, and 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 they could sort of foresee it. Where today, what I what I'm seeing more is that they're looking at guys that are already good, and they're just dropping huge amounts of money on them, and then just you know crossing fingers and helping them to be that one that one of the kind rider. So it is it is a bit of a different how it was, it was done. Um, but Alan's still doing his thing and, you know, we've seen the success of Alan Piper today. Let's talk, we kind of have to talk about your Grand Tour record because, I mean, people spoke about the time, but even now, looking back at it, I mean, these days you probably wouldn't get picked for all those back-to-back Grand Tour. I mean, was it 20 back-to-back? To back-to-back, to back-to-back. What goes through the life of someone that's on the road constantly three weeks at a time? Are you bored? What time do you get up in the morning? <laughs> How do you, does that work within the team when they're already knocking off a place and the things like, oh, yeah, Adam's going, he's going again? <laughs> um, well, I liked it because I spent more time at home. And I know that doesn't sound right, but, like, um, if you do 101-day races a year, you get 100 travel days also. So you wait for 200 days a year. <clears throat> so I was actually only doing nine races a year and only had nine travel days a year. So overall I spent more time at home. Uh, I really enjoyed having a month off before the Giro. I enjoyed having a month off between uh, the Giro and the Tour, and exactly the same for the Tour and the Belta. So in this sense, it was um, in this sense, it was a lot of time at home, and I, and I really enjoyed coming home, having a week off, did not think about cycling, slowly coming back into it and, and building up into it. So this this to me was a huge advantage just for my personal life and that. Also, when I was single. I wasn't spending electricity, food. <laughs> I was saving so much money um, in this sense. <clears throat> so this was, a, this was a, a nice little factor also. But, um, yeah, when I look back at it, I, I didn't realise how, how big of a thing it was. And I remember, like, I, I won a stage in the, in the Giro. I won a stage in the Belta, and I'd go on the podium to sign on every day at, at a Grand Tour, and they would just talk about the Grand Tours. You know, he's at 15 in a row or 17 in a row and he's getting – and I was like, you know, I've won. I've won. Talk about my Giro. Talk about my Belto, you know. Like I was like – like they were pretty important things to me. Then, then I realised that, you know, 
and I don't want to say everyone wins a stage in, in these Grand Tours, but it, like there are 21 winners at every single Grand Tour. And I didn't realize how unique this was and how, how special it was and, and no one's done it and no one will ever do it again. And now after my career, I see that the true, I don't want to say value, but how, how big it was for these people that, um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty um, remarkable achievement that I did. And, and not just to, to finish it, but to get selected every year was, was not so easy because there were some years, there were some Grand Tours that I was on borderline just with a bad performance before. Not being sick, that was a huge thing because riders always get sick and and going home because of this reason and not crashing out. Um, So to have all that fall in place, um, yeah, it's it's not only it's, uh, I think, uh, a remarkable achievement on performance-wise but also just luck and being healthy and staying away from the crashes. And it's something that when I look back, yeah, I'm, I'm far more proud of it now than back then. And how, because obviously that spans such a long time, how did expectations change of you in those races over the years? Um, for, for, for me, I was always a helper. So I was always, a, always helping Cavendish, always helping Greipel. So my job, I don't want to say my job was, was relatively easy. I did have a lot of pressure, but I was always a pretty good climber for my body weight and I could always climb better than Andre and Cab. So when I had to stay with these guys, going over the climbs was relatively easy. I still had to do it, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the pressure to stay in the first group all the time. Sometimes I did with Kim Kirken and, um, and Vanderbrook also where I had to get over some of the mountain passes. So in that sense, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty, let's say easy in that sense. But yeah, with the, uh, the, the pressure of, um, making the team was, was difficult. Um, but so with the, the difference with the expectations was that I could still do my role as, as helping as as helping these riders there were times where I, I also had had the let's say the, the will of the team to go on the breakaways and and try and get the stage wins and during the middle of the of the grand tours I was actually racing very good I could see there was a bit of a toll taking place where I was getting tired towards the end um, my top end wasn't so good um, I was still able to get in the breakaways um, but it was a lot harder. So I, I did definitely change the focus on like sort of going for myself to more helping the team, more in the leadership role, controlling the riders, making sure they're all doing the proper job. And yeah, it did definitely change towards the end. How did your kind of mindset change? Because I imagine that you go into your first Grand Tour and you're just really, you know, you're over the moon that you've been selected and it's probably overwhelming and amazing, exciting, incredibly anxiety inducing. Are oh, you going to get to the end? And by the end of your career, you've done 29 and finished 26 Grand Tours. Is that correct? So somewhere there, yeah. Yeah, so so basically you're very good at stage racing. And also you're someone that would be, as you say, first over a mountain, like taking people like Cav and Greipel through the harder stages so they could go and contest the sprints. But also, you know, head of a breakaway, um, you're Australian national time trial champion. You've got some serious chops on the flat. You're a pretty complete rider. And it must have occurred to you at some point, hey, I'm bloody good at this. And maybe if I was the guy that everyone else was working for, I could be the guy on that podium on a regular basis. Did those thoughts occur to you? And, and, and if and when they did, where do you kind of go with it? Because I don't know, from, from my kind of armchair perspective, I'd find that very difficult because I'd feel like, hey, guys, you know, I'm, 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 I'm more than this. And yet I have to just serve the rest of the team to get the team's results, which is obviously, you know, that, that is cycling, but given as though your career is so long, 
was there a point where you're like, come on, just give me that opportunity. Give me a, give me, give me a team that's going to support me for a change. I like this question because it, it, this, this goes into my thought even before that. So I turned professional at the age of, um, I think 24, 25. So I had a very late start to my, my career. Um, when I raced Continental, I, I won 14 races in one year. Um, I actually won quite a lot of races, a lot of smaller races, but I, I won quite a lot of races. And then when I went to T-Mobile, I had, let's say, a lot of competition there. Um, you saw the roster. They're, they're, they're all pretty good. <laughs> and and what, what happened once is in Tour California, we had the stage and it wasn't sure that Cavendish was going to go make it over the climb. We were all told to stay at the front. If Cav gets dropped, leave him there. And I spoke to Cav and I said, look, Cav, if you want me to stay with you, I'll stay with you. And then he was like, really? I said, yeah, yeah, we'll give it a try because what am I going to do in the front? We, we got other superstars there and, and, you know, if we've got a chance to bring you back, I think, um, I think it's worth it, worth a try. And then I had Ralph Aldock hear this and he said, no, 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 you stay in the first group. That's the orders. And then the race happened. I stayed with Cav because I thought he was going to make it over. He didn't make it over, but I stayed with him and I worked and, and I did everything I can to bring him back to the, to the front. And this, this really changed the dynamics of the team back then because what happened then was Cav realised how important teammates were and I was the first teammate to be super loyal to Cav. After that, Cav wanted me to go to all his races. So as a second-year pro, I went to the Tour de France, which was, which was huge for me, um, and I saw that my career just just changed from that race onwards where I went to all the big races because I was the most loyal person to Cav. And I was racing with Cav all the way until um, until one small race, I think it was uh, uh, four days of Dunkirk, um, where I broke my collarbone and then I was, wasn't able to do the next race with him. And then, um, and, and I'm not attacking Bernie Eisel here, but Bernie Eisel sort of slipped in and, and took my spot there. Um, so he replaced me as, as, as the guy helping Cav. And then I started working for Andre Greipel because just because of the timing of my collarbone and coming back into, into racing. And then I went to Andre and I helped him and, and we did a very good uh, belter. I think he won four or five stages there. It was incredible. And then at the end of the season, um, when we were talking about with Rolf Aldock about um, what I do next year, they, they said I'd be on the Andre Greipel program. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, normally I was with Cav. I was just wondering what's happening. And he said to me, the problem with you, Adam, is when you ride for Cav, you give 100%. And when you ride for Andre, you give 100%. But we have other guys in the team, when they ride for Cav, they give 100%. But when they ride for Andre, they give 70 to 60%. So it's better value for us to send you with Andre because you're always loyal and you do 100% for your leader and then send the other rider to, to Cavendish. And I thought, okay. And that's how I, I flipped chains to working for Andre and, and to Cab. And I have no regrets. I've had an amazing career with Andre and, 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 and Andre and I are super close and everything. But what I realized going back to your question was it was better for my career at long term and it was more, um, more guaranteed that I would have a long career, I could stay in the sport if I did go in the direction of supporting leaders because I know I can do that in a very well way. When I rode amateur and I had um, those 14 wins in the continental team, I had so many riders, I was thinking, you know, if they just did this for me, it would help me so much. And, 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 and I, I learned what was very helpful for a leader to do because that's what I wanted as I was a leader. So me applying that for the leaders of 
Tim Kirkin or Vandenbroek or, or the sprinters, this really gave me a good skill set to be a good domestic for these guys. And this really promoted my career, um, not, as you said, winning races, but definitely having a, a super long career and riding for good teams. So for me, it was just a safe bet. Um, I also don't really like to be in the, the limelight. So it was nice to stay low. That's also another reason why I live in the Czech Republic. I know everyone lives in Girona and Monaco and that, and it's just cyclists everywhere. And, and for me, it's nice to go to the races, come to Czech, no cyclists here. I stay under the radar. I do my own thing. And, and I actually, yeah, maybe I could have got some more results for myself, but this was definitely the, um, let's say the more secure way to have a good career, long career and, um, and enjoy it without being, having all the pressure too. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of the Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. How important or unimportant, rather, is ego in a long career? Because it feels like maybe you've managed to contain an ego in a sense, which I wonder how that plays out on the road in terms of what you described as say like luck avoiding crashes. Is it actually more design? Because what you're trying to do is do things for other people, not do things to get yourself in the spotlight, not take risks, not do dumb things because the own your raison d'etre is to win. Do smart things because your raison d'etre is to get to the end so other people can win. I just wonder like, is it possible to not be humble and to have the length of career that you've had? It feels like humility is like such a big part of someone that can do the things that you've done for so long. You know, looking at the leaders, they have a lot of pressure. And, you know, if you look at um, Cal Bilwin this year and last year, the problems you've had with uh, Lotto uh, Destiny and that, um, you know, he's paid well, paid very well, paid very well to win, not winning. That's a lot of pressure. And things can be can go south uh, very quickly on a on a I think men, on a mental side. F- for me, I was just happy to race. I was just happy to be a pro racing, um, having fun with guys. And I know it's it's hard for some people to understand that you know when Andre won some races, it, it, I really felt that we won the races and we were really part of it and. It was so nice, some of the big wins that we had with Andre and, and Cav also that you would, you know, on, we, <clears throat> you would see it after the finish line. We're all hugging each other. We're all super happy. And it was so nice just to go into the bus and <laughs> that was it. Didn't have to do, you know, the press conference, the interviews yeah. um, and all that. And a lot of people probably don't know this, but I'm a major introvert 
and and like a huge introvert, I have to say, like during the COVID lockdowns was the best part of my life <laughs> where I just <laughs> stayed at home and didn't have to see anyone. Um, I have to really say that was the best part of my life. Um, I just really just, it was just me at home and, and by myself and didn't have to integrate with other people. So I think for me in particular, I had no no regrets with um, the, the direction I, I took. You, you, you're right, all sports people are super competitive, especially against each other. A lot of people don't see that before Tour de France selections, there are guys competing against each other, unbelievable in the races, just to make tour selection for the guys on place, you know, sixth, seventh, and eighth. And and this really gets in the way of how teams work, and and it's a bit of a nightmare in a sense, watching these teams function and Dolphin or Swiss and or Stereo Tour before. But for me personally, I was just happy to be a professional happy to be part of a, a, a winning team and success and knowing that I was part of Andre's, a lot of his wins, to me this was uh, super nice to be part of. It also seems like with all that experience, you're sort of learning and taking things in along the way, like looking at what you've done off the bike. It sort of seems like all of, or a lot of that is informed by your experience, like your bike fit stuff with Leomo, your was it making your own carbon shoes and obviously now with the cpa there's a lot of your experience sort of plays into that were you thinking about other things whilst you were you know doing your 20 back to back to back grand tours oh for sure um you know it's you know just if we go on the topic of of the shoes to me it was when, when i compared my cycling shoes to the garner shoes of um the team sponsors of Lemo, my shoes were half a kilo lighter in total weight of both the shoes and to me that's wow. rotational weight that's that's what you're doing every single pedaling stroke and rotational weight if you're talking to a mechanical engineer the first thing you do to make an engine faster is the pistons rod camshaft to lighten that up and that's what the shoes are the cranks the pistons and and, and that's rotational weight so for me the idea is I probably wasn't the best cyclist in the world, obviously, but if I can reduce, if I can be as efficient as possible, this can really make a difference to my lead outs or the performance at the end of the race. And I always had this idea is that, you know, if you come to a race, uh, come to a final of a race and you're 90% of your 100% ability, um, and this can be because of uh, the, the glycogen stores, uh, the energy you saved, you will outperform a rider that is better than you at 60% of his best because he has been unefficient in the race, um, hasn't been eating right and things like that. And that's why I really trained my fat metabolism because I believe that the better my fat metabolism was in the race, I'm sparing glycogen more. And if I'm, if I'm holding that glycogen more and I can use that in the final, which is a far better energy source for a high, high power output, if I was more aerodynamic on the bike, um, I'd be saving watts the whole time. Uh, that's why I had a super aerodynamic position. Um, I was using 36-centimeter handlebars since, well, I was one of the first. Um, I can't remember when I started. I think it was 2000 and and eight and I had a fight with the mechanics because I had girls handlebars on my bike and they just they wouldn't allow it because they didn't make them in men's and also the shoes and you know this is a huge saving in, in watts output so the experience definitely um it definitely helped me a lot um it's it's nice to see that everyone's sort of going in the same direction with handlebars position to be more aerodynamic skin suits I remember um I was at Tour California and, and I had a um, the first aerodynamic jersey and I had Ralph Aldock. He put his arm around me and he was feeling my shoulder and he was like, what is this? And I was like, <laughs> uh, it's a jersey. He goes, that's not one of our jerseys. 
And I was like, no, I made it myself. And then he was like, but it's so tight. I said, yeah, it's a aerodynamic jersey. And then he was like, because every, every other jersey is, you know, flappy like a T-shirt and that. And I was like, yeah, I, I said, I've been actually using it for a couple of months. No one's noticed. So it's <laughs> the riders are asking, but no, no one from um, the, the manufacturer or the team sponsors or, or even the management, you're the first person to work it out only because you, you touched my shoulder and was like he was touching my skin. So all these things I was putting in place become far more efficient. And it's nice to see that everyone's going that direction now. So I was actually doing something right, which is good. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely helped. And um, I'm trying to use this also, yeah, with Limo. So this is a, a, a company that I, that I work with now. Um, and we're doing performance services and also bike fits and that. But, yeah, it's all helping. And, and, and you know, I do have a lot of – I think I have a lot of experience, um, especially with my long career and everything I've learned and tried and, and tested. Um, I, I was always a person that wanted to try everything and, and I, was a, I was my own guinea pig. So um, I, I did all the tests on myself and, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I talk to a lot of teams and I have still a lot of riders that come out to me and ask for advice, on, especially um, diet advice and, and, and I have a lot of people asking for my shoes, which is um, this is uh, a nightmare to make, but I hope to have one wheel to a rider <laughs> next year to be wearing them. So I will start to make the shoes for other riders. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's coming out there. Yeah, I mean, for anyone that hasn't heard about Hansino and Adam's shoes, carbon fiber shoes that you make yourself, and I think famously a pair, am I right in saying 58 grams per shoe? Uh, the lightest I've made is 76 grams. Um, so that is lighter than a Mars bar. Um, Which is just <laughs> insane. It absolutely blows my mind. Yeah, when you pick it up, it feels like you're not holding something. Um, it, is, it is unbelievable how light they are. And, and, and <clears throat> to get to that, you know, like, it, it's, it's, it's common sense that, you know, if you have a piece of paper and you hold it out right, it's going to fall down. Um, we know the Bond shoes, they have like, we call it a bathtub design. So, you know, there's a bit of stiffness there where my shoes actually wrap around to the top. And because they wrap around to the top, it's like a pole. You know, it's like a tube. So that's where I get the extra stiffness. And because of that, I can use less material. And that's where I get the, the, the lighter weight with the, with the same stiffness as a, as a normal shoe. So, yeah, it's, it's, they're, they're good shoes. Yeah, well, with that kind of that sort of inquiring mind, that kind of approach, the way you just explained it, then I feel like you've clearly got an incredible grasp of engineering, particularly how that plays out for bikes. And I'm just thinking back to having Alex Dowsett on the podcast, and he was explaining, you know, many a generation after you, maybe even two, really, when we think about it. Alex was somebody who, by his own words, you know, punched above his weight in many races because he went to town on his kit. But in doing that, he really butted heads with team management. And particularly, you know, one, one uh, scenario is Alex saying he has gone to, I think, Katusha maybe. So he's on canyons and basically the canyon base bar is a low bar on the TT bike. He wants a high bar and he goes to one of the mechanics, I want a high bar. And the mechanic says, no, we don't do that. Fabian, as in Cancellara, always rode with a low bar. That's what we do. And that thing where you're like, you're a you're progressive in your sport and you're doing it as well you know you need to win to get contracts to pay the bills ultimately and then you've got some bloke who possibly never even has raced some old grizzled belgian mechanic saying no mate fabian always used to ride like this so that's what we do was that something that manifested in your career and if it did how did you kind of work around it what sort of things did you come to blows over and how did you work around it this is this is what blows my mind is when a mechanic, and no disrespect to mechanics, 
But um, especially in the older days, mechanics were giving um, advice on positions and that and equipments to use. And yeah, when I was using Gill's handlebars back, I think it was 2008, um, they were just like, you cannot race with girl handlebars. And I was like, yeah, but they don't make this size in the men's range. So the smallest men's was 42 and I want to be as narrow as possible. And it was a huge fight with the mechanics. Um, the other thing I had a fight with um, is when I was national time trial champion, I had a super high position on my arms, super high position, and the mechanics were totally against it. And I was nicknamed um, Twin Towers because I had these, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, these, these uh, what do they call it, the, the, the spaces. I had so high spaces and I had to make my own um, bolts to, to, to fit them in because the team issue ones were too short to, to have all the spaces. And I wanted to be high. I wanted my arms, you know, to, to cover my face. And I was just, just in constant fights with the mechanics. Like, and also the DSs were like, yeah, but it's ugly. Look at it. You know, the bars are so low and you want to be so high. I was like, yeah, but I, I tested this. I tested this in the wind tunnel in Prague and this is faster. And then, um, and okay, this is back in 2008 and I had huge fights. And basically they said I couldn't ride that position. And now look today. Everyone does it, you know. Yeah. It's sort of like, oh, if I would have had that advantage back then and kept it before the others caught on, yeah, I, I could have got some um, better results. But it is, it is a back in those days, and and also also a bit recently, there weren't so many performance, let's say, performance coaches in the team. There's more just DSs and mechanics, and that's who we're going against. We're going with mechanics that have been mechanics for 20, 30 years, and they didn't want to change. And we're going with D, working with DSs that were riders even you know even older than us, and it was it was very different. Where today everyone's a bit more open into new ideas, and now everyone today is just looking for you know how can they, I don't want to say cheat the system, but like find where those margin gains are and that. And you know I was I was speaking to Michael Rogers and 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 we joked about this actually. If you want to find, you know, how to go fast, especially if you're a triathlete, if you want to find out how to go fast, just look in the UCI regulations because whatever they're stopping, <laughs> that's all the fast <laughs> things, you know what I mean? If they say you can't do this, there's a reason because, you know, it's an unfair advantage, you know. You can't have skin suits with a, more than one millimeter <clears throat> um, uh, difference in height because there's an advantage of that. And UCI are trying to make an uh, even level playing field. And if you just look at the regulations, you can you can see that the UCI they, they know what they're, they're they're doing. I know they're a bit old fashioned and a bit slow in what they're doing, but they know where the performance gains are. And they're just trying to make an even field. And the, we should probably get on to what is probably your most front facing thing now, which is your role in the CPA, which is basically the riders pro riders union. How did you get into that? What made you want to do that? And are you enjoying it? <laughs> <laughs> especially as an introvert as well yeah. like that's, a, that's oh, a... man. i don't know if i can answer that last question <laughs> honestly <laughs> I, I i got into the cpa because i had some issues i want to change many many years ago um so i came to one of the meetings and it was just mayhem it was a mess um i have to admit it was it was yeah it was it was not very uh it, it was just mayhem it was it was just too many cultures, too many different nationalities, just going against each other, and 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 what people what people forget sometimes is you have workers union, which is normal in every in every um, in, in every uh, different workforce, and then you have the employers, and it's basically union versus employers. And what we have is we have the union 
and the employers are the teams. And then we have the UCI and then we have the race organisers. And so it's not just one party versus another party. So this is actually very difficult. And me going to the meeting, I saw that the riders, that they're, they're really unaware of what's happening and they're unaware of what's happening because of two reasons. One, it's too complicated for them and it's too hard for them to understand and to go to all the meetings, um, it's too much time. And, and the other, they just want to ride their bikes. The riders don't care unless there's a problem, which, which I understand. And I feel that a lot now. To get the riders involved is very difficult because they just want to focus riding their bike. So I was sort of a little bit in the CPA, just, just keeping an eye on it and, and just watching how it was going. And then they asked me to, be, to put my hand up and, and be a candidate to be uh, president uh, last year. And I, I thought about it and I was really enjoying doing triathlons, um, having time off and, and having a, a bit of a quiet life and that. And I was promised it's not so much work. It's, um, it's pretty easy. Uh, don't worry. And, and then I, I, in my head was no, 100% no. And then I, I stupidly asked, and, and what's the pay? <laughs> and I was told the to pay and I was like, oh, now I'm going to look like an idiot because I just asked how much <laughs> and now they're going to think I'm going to say no because the pay is really not worth it, really not worth it. And then I was like, okay. And then I thought actually it would be good for me because uh, it would be good for management skills. Um, this is a skill set I'm not good at. I'm not good at public speaking. I'm not good at politics and I'm still not good at politics and I would never be good at politics. (laughs) Um, I'm too direct, but it's something, you know, because I always like learning and, 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 and testing myself. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I put my hand up and it is just, it is 10 times the work that I was told. It is, it is more than a full-time job. I have a problem with my girlfriend at the moment because I'm just always on my phone and, she is very traditional, which I love. I love. And traditional people are like, you don't work on the weekends. <laughs> people don't work on the weekends. And I'm like, yeah, but there's races on the weekends. <laughs> and then she goes, yeah, but five o'clock the race is finished. I'm like, yeah, but when they're racing, I don't have to do anything because I don't have to talk to anyone. So after <clears throat> five o'clock, that's when I'm talking to people. And it, it, was, it was hard for her to understand that I'm talking to people until 11 to 12 o'clock at night. And cycling is just a nonstop let's say, workforce. And during the tour uh, or the Grand Tours, it's really like just 22 or 23 days straight with the rest days and everything before. And so the workload is huge. So this is hard. Um, As an introvert, yeah, I do have, I do have, actually, it's not so bad when I'm talking one-on-one with the riders. I don't mind this. Um, and when it's, when it's more professional, I don't mind speaking to a group of people. Um, so this is okay. The politics side, I'm, I I don't want to say I'm struggling with, it's just that I, I, I don't like to play the political game. I, I just like going straight, straight into it. So for example, we had a call with the president yesterday. So that's when all the writers can ask questions to the president of the UCI. And so he asked the question, like he did a, he did an introduction and then he said, okay, any questions? And the writers, I was told in the past there was quite a lot of questions. And, you know, I said, and I put my hand up and, and I, I'm not meant to ask a question. And I said, hey, writers, the president's here. This is your time to ask questions. I encourage you to ask questions, go hardcore, really get into him and get what you want to know because, you know, this happens once a year. And the president was sort of like, oh, you don't have to go hardcore into me in that. But, you know, but that's, that's how I want to act. I want the riders to know that this is the time to do it. And if you want to speak up, speak up. 
after a while, there, there were some questions, but it sort of died down a little. And then I said in the, in, I put my hand up again into this Zoom call, uh, uh, conference call, and I said, right, as if you're afraid of asking questions in front of the president, you can WhatsApp me the questions and I can ask it anonymously on your behalf. And also the UCI president was like, <laughs> he was a bit uh, <laughs> pushed back to lot. But, you know, that's what we're meant to do, though. But also as a representative of the CPA, that's my job. I, I don't mind putting my face in front of the writers and say, no, no, this is what they want to know. Please answer the question. Um, I'm sorry if you're not happy with the question, but that's what we need to know. We need to find out. So the political side, yeah, <clears throat> I'm not good at this, um, but I don't mind not being good at this because I just want to be direct with these people. I don't like to, you know, play the political game, beating around the bush, working out deals. If it's if the writers want this, I'll fight for this. That's 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 where I want to go with that. So, what kind of questions then are the writers asking? Um, the questions that were asked. Um, so one of them was the gravel series. There's a bit of a problem with um, that the, the pro riders sort of just get thrown into the world championship so easily. And the, the, say the, the real gravel riders, they work all year to, to, to get a spot and some, some riders don't qualify and the pro riders get automatically entry. Um, so they wanted to know how the UCI was going to deal with that. There were some questions also that we're getting a lot of gravel uh, stages in the tour next year. Um, a lot of riders do think that gravel's gravel, rolled is rolled. We understand that it's good as you know, visually on TV, and and I, you know, I, I agree with the riders on this sense where that if you include these gravel sections and you put riders on gravel bikes, you have at least seventy percent of the peloton never been on a gravel bike, never rode gravel uh, uh, roads before. And you're doing this at the world's biggest race. So this, this can cause um, some problems. And one of the riders concerned was that uh, this is a lady that asked this question. She was a professional gravel rider. She has the experience. And at the world championships, there was crashes of road riders coming into the gravel sport, not knowing that um, <clears throat> um, like on the road, you can use your front brake quite a lot. It's very powerful. But using your front brake on a gravel <laughs> is very dangerous. <laughs> um, so it, it, is, it is a difference and it's a different skill set, that's for sure. And she was saying there was a lot more crashes and it was due to the road riders. Um, so there was questions about this. There's questions about also um, what the UCI is going to do with the longevity of teams, how to make them more sustainable, and also how can a rider sign a contract that is longer than the, than the team's sponsorship. And, you know, once again... The, the, the questions are just, the answers are just dragged out and not really answered directly and, and I put my hand up and, <laughs> and, and, and I said, I said um, look, on the sustainable of the team, that's something that I, I cannot discuss. But if a rider is signing a contract, they should first see the sponsorship of the teams. Every, every, every rider knows the, the length of the, the sponsorship the teams have. So when I was with Lotto, we knew it was on two-year basis every two years or three years. And I said, it's very easy to find this out. You can ask them. It's, it's always written in the media. Um, you should know about it because it's always, you know, it's always in your team's um, newsletters and that, which you should be reading that. To say that the UCI should not allow this, I, I, I personally disagree because for myself, if in Lotto Sadol at one stage, they had sponsorship for two years. Now, I was able, that was offered a three-year deal. Now, I know they have no sponsors in the, in the year after. It's not fixed. But I also know it's, it's Lotto. They will continue forever. So do we really want to stop riders 
taking that risk, guaranteed a contract. It's not guaranteed, but it's it's kind of guaranteed. Or forcing riders to say, no, no, you can't have that third year because they have no sponsorship. Now, from some riders' perspective, they would take that risk. If you're with Enos, you would take that risk. If you're with Jumbo, you take that risk. If you're with Lotto, you take that risk. If you're with, I don't want to down talk Israel, but if they're threatening to cancel the team, maybe that's not a team to, you know, sign an extra year contract with that team. But let's not, let's not make this a rule. Let's make the riders have the choice, the freedom of the choice. And if they want, it's good because, you know, if, if every rider wants a longer contract and let's have riders sign contracts longer than the team sponsorships if they want to. They're not forced to. They can always say, no, I don't want three years, I want two years. So, so to take this away from riders I think is wrong. I think it's more responsibility on the riders to say, okay, the team's got two-year sponsorship. Do I want to sign a contract longer than two years? And if I do, rider's choice. So in this sense, and that rider didn't, didn't see it like that where it's actually an advantage for riders if, if, they, if they work it out. Um, so that was one of one of the other juicy questions, um, and then the last question was: um, There's this new, uh, let's say, uh, commission starting next year called Safer, um, and this Safer commission is going to be a jointly project with uh, the riders' teams, organisers, UCI, where they will have a bunch of auditors, and these auditors will randomly go to races like doping control. It would be random, and they'll make sure the race is put in in a fair way. And this has been a very big topic in the last couple of weeks because we needed to decide uh, two days ago that uh, what's the rider's position because the riders would have to contribute. So the riders would pay 20%, the UCI would pay 20% plus legal costs, the organizers would pay 30% and the teams would pay 30%. And it would work out to be €206 per world tour rider per year and it was €59 for pro tour rider or women's uh, world tour rider per year. Um, and if they want to be part of the project. If they did not agree, then there was a good chance this project would not go forwards, or if they did, if it did go forwards, the CPA, myself, would not be on the board. And for us, it's important to be on the board because I've been working with this project for about six months to work out the business structure, the direction where it should go, how we should audit the races, what we should be looking for, how we should, um, what's the working method, how should the auditors work, And it would be good if we had someone, myself, on my hand on the steering wheel controlling it, not just it goes their way and we have no control from the riders' point of view. Um, So it's up to the riders to do a vote, and and they did cast their vote. And and if you want to know the numbers offhand, it was uh, 79.08% were in favour of this project going forwards and 20.92% were against it from the male side. And from the female side, I don't have in front of me, but it was something like 96% of the women's wanted to go forwards. It was a, a much higher in the women's side. Um, so this project looks like it'll be going forward. It's not for sure. And one of the questions from the riders was, why do the riders have to pay for their own safety? And this has been, a, um, this has been let's say, the main reason why we had the, the, the 20% of the riders, of the male riders not going forwards with this because um, it is true when we look into the details, um, as we all know, the employees are responsible for uh, the employee's safety. Uh, so, and this is this is the tricky thing with cycling and, and it makes, it, it's very hard for people to understand and it doesn't make sense. A rider is employed by the team. So by law, the employer is responsible for the employee's safety. 
But how can a team ensure safety when they're sending the riders to a race and the race organiser one that's holding the race? Um, so this is this is very tricky in this sense, where the UCI governs the rules of the race. So to, for me, at my first when we were looking at this, I wanted to find out, okay, who's accountable and we hold that person accountable and if we can we can find that out, then we can sort of make the, the safety standards more strict. So we went to the lawyer and we found out and he said the employer is responsible for the employee's safety, so that means it's a team, so we can't sue the teams or, or make them accountable because this would be disaster riders going against their own team. <clears throat> and in a lot of laws in, oh, sorry, a lot of countries' laws is that employees never pay for their own safety. So that's, that's another thing. So we have to get this uh, done by voluntary uh, that the riders want to contribute to this. And, yeah, so one of the questions was is why, why do the riders have to pay for this? And basically the, the, the president said that, you know, it's a joint, agree- it's a joint uh, effort. Um, also 50% of all crashes is due to riders' behaviour. So riders do cause a lot of the crashes themselves. It's also the organisers and, and other issues too. We also had two riders being hit by uh, DSs driving. So this is also an issue. So it's also the teams are involved. Yeah, and so the answer was basically it's a joint agreement um, and the UCI president also said, and I don't know if you're aware, that riders pay for extra doping controls. So riders pay uh, 1.82% of their, well, they used to pay 1.82% of the prize money for more t- testing because of the, of the bad history of the sport. So riders pay 3% of the total cost. Teams pay this, organisers pay this, UCI pay this. So what the president was saying, well, the organisers are actually asking, why should we pay for your doping controls? So on this sense, it's more of a a balance effect. Now, that's what he said. That's not what um, I agree on. We agree that this program goes forwards. We agree that the riders should not have to pay for it. But if the riders are willing to pay for it, then I think it's okay. And you've just renegotiated the agreement. I think, is it just the men's? Peloton, um, that with a joint agreement, basically, is what that stuff. I, I saw there was quite a big part that you spoke about that was to do with the insurance for riders and races, which kind of shocked me. What you said, Can you explain what it was in the joint agreement and what's changed for the riders. Yeah, um, so the joint agreement hasn't been updated for a long time, and this is one of the things I wanted to work on. And what I actually did was, is I went to all the races and I said, look, riders. I want to upgrade the joint agreement. In my honest opinion, I don't think you guys are professional enough to give me advice on this. Give me your agents because they do all your contracts and everything and, we'll, and I'll happily speak to your agents. If the riders want to say something, tell me, but the agents are the one that really know the contracts better than the riders. So I spoke to a lot of the agents and one of the agents actually told me that the insurance is a major problem. And this, this particular rider agent, he worked for an insurance company before, and what he was telling me was that some teams were getting travel insurance for riders competing in Australia, China, and Canada, and travel insurance does not cover dangerous sports. Now, I know I've gone to Himalayas quite, quite regularly on my bike, and travel insurance does not cover you at all. Um, there's even some insurances that don't cover you above 2,000 metres. So this is one really important thing that we had to uh, get changed. And negotiating with teams, this was a nightmare. This was, this was an absolute nightmare because we had uh, insurance companies on the call, we had teams on the call, and when we're negotiating this, uh, they were saying, yeah, but, you know, with this sex, and, and I, had, I went into this meeting having no idea the price of insurance. Like I had no <laughs> idea what the teams are paying. 
And I, I had this figure in my mind, it was like 4,000 euro, 5,000 euro, you know, dangerous sports. This is, this is the figure in my head. And we're negotiating, well, we're trying to negotiate this and, and what the insurance company is like, ah, oh, because what we wanted to do is we wanted to improve um, disabilities insurance um, if you can't work uh, because of a crash. Um, also life insurance we wanted to include. We want to increase all the coverages. Uh, also, the legal aspects. If you had to go to court um, disputes and that with the insurance comp- with the with the hospitals and insurance companies, we want we want a complete nice package, and especially international insurance because this was my main concern. Especially if you're in if you're in a different country and you're not insured, this is this is this can be a nightmare. Um, and also, the, the difficulties with this is a lot of these insurances don't include your home residence, and they rely on your home residence. And every country has different insurances especially like America, they have, uh, they have their own insurance system. And some other countries like Monaco and that, they have a totally different insurance um, policy. So we wanted a fair get across the board. And when I was negotiating uh, uh, with the teams with this, and there was this one point where this insurance company said, yeah, but if we change, you know, to um, what the riders get back on one certain aspect, it was 100,000, we wanted to increase it to 250,000 uh, euro the insurance company was like, yeah, but then that's that's 300% more um, the teams would have to pay. And I was like, think, well, this is going to be so expensive for the teams. And I understand why they're fighting against it. And then we kept talking and then he was like, yeah, but that's just one part of it. And I was like, oh, so can you explain this to me? He goes, oh, there's five different parts and that includes that part by 300%. I said, well, what's the price difference? He goes, oh, 200 euro. I was like, we're arguing <laughs> about 200 euro? Like, are you serious? What is the insurance? It was like 1,800 euro is like some teams pay 1,500 euro for the rider. And I was just thinking, all the, we're all arguing about two to 300 euro? Like this is insane. Like some of the riders would just pay this themselves. And, but this is, this is what we have to deal with. So, yeah, the insurances was, was a, a bit of a fight, but the teams agreed to not everything. <laughs> I have to laugh because it's called the joint agreement. And a lot of times <laughs> I walked away and I was like, this is not an agreement. This is not what I want. This is this is what they want. So, but I understand, you know, it's it is sort of an agreement. But yeah, we we got it. We got it improved quite a lot. So the insurances are far better for the riders. Um, so that's that's definitely one thing that's improved. And other parts of racing, where would you see those heading? And I'm thinking specifically. Um, you touched on it already. Um, rider safety, which just comes up year after year, and obviously. This year, uh, this year just gone when this podcast goes out, probably, you know, the tragic death of Gino Maida. And that's somebody who is pushing themselves to the limit on a descent at the Abuda Pass in Switzerland, at the Tour de Suisse, and crashes in, in tragic circumstances. And, and some people go, well, that's bike racing. And other people go, there is no way you should be putting in a stretch of road for this number of riders to be going this fast on and encouraging them and putting it in this part of a stage, just to, you're effectively goading people into crashing. Where do you, as a rider, sit on that? And does that differ to where you sit on it as CPA president? It is tricky because the, the, the culture of the sport is to, to race as fast as possible. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is we, we definitely have to improve uh, uh, education for the riders. I think sometimes they feel a bit invincible. And, and I had that feeling. Sometimes you do a descent and you just nail it perfectly and you go faster and the next time and next time. And I think riders forget that, you know, we, we do these crazy descents with just a bit of styrofoam on your head. 
and that's it. You know, it's just like the the motorbike racing on the on the, uh, the Isle of Man. You know, they just go way over the limit and risking everything. But they have a proper helmet, full face helmet. They have proper protective gear, and and cyclists. They don't go 300 kilometers or 200 kilometers, but they go they go over 100 kilometers on these descents. And a descent is far worse when you crash than on the flat because gravity helps you continue the crash. So um, there definitely has to be an improvement in in riders' education, and this is this is part of riders' behavior. So that's one aspect. To say that they encourage riders, if if we talk about Arenberg, the the Paris Bay sector, the most dangerous one, we had uh, a few sports directors call us up saying, "Look, this is getting crazy. They just want broken bones and broken bikes." Like this, they want a lot of sports directors called up to have this sector removed because it's just getting way too dangerous. And and what we're thinking of is the the biggest issue with Arenberg is it's almost a sprint finish. You have to be at the front of that sector to be in the first group afterwards. So riders are hitting the sector at 50 to, to, to 55 kilometres an hour. And the sector is, is dangerous, but hitting it at 55 kilometres an hour, this is super dangerous. So some, some tactics that we're thinking of is, okay, let's not go straight into the sector. Let's, let's, let's take a 90-degree corner and then do a 180 hairpin just before and then come back and do a 90-degree corner. So riders hit the sector at 30 kilometres an hour or 25 kilometres an hour. So you can still have the culture of the sport, the sector still there, still exciting, but you don't have all these riders coming in there at 55 kilometres an hour. And things like this can improve the sport, uh, the safety side of the sport, without killing the sport. And when we're looking at that tragic um, incident in Swiss, the issue with this one is, from a safety point of view, the road was perfect. He knew the road. He lived there, and 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 he there, there was there was not nothing deemed that was particularly unsafe on the road. The dangerous thing was is the high speed. That's that's the dangerous part. And riders have to be more aware of this. Um, I don't want to blame to blame it on 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 the organisers for for having this type of 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 let's say section in a race. But I think there definitely needs to be some form of better education um, and awareness because I think some riders, they do get a bit overconfident and, then, and they do take um, matters in their own hand where, and they just forget how dangerous the sport is and how fast they go. So it is a tricky one because, you know, there's some arguments also, okay, if you, if you cancel a descent into the finish, some organisers say, well, what's the difference if you have a finish, uh, sorry, downhill section in the middle of the race where a rider wants to attack. You know, they can also do the same thing in the middle of the race towards the end of the race. So it is a tricky thing, um, but I think the number one thing is we have to uh, uh, improve the rider's education and we have to think of ideas how we can slow down riders to, to make the crashes less severe because the problem today, the, the, the tyres are faster, the tyre pressures improved, the wheels are more aerodynamic, the frames are more aerodynamic, the riders' positions are more aerodynamic, uh, riders are consuming more carbohydrates than ever so they have the more energy than ever and they're just going faster. And we've got to find ways, like the example with Arenberg, how we can keep everything and sort of slow down the riders just to make it safer. We did see in the Vuelta, obviously that was afterwards, that they started putting barriers on the climbs like around the corners of a descent. Is that something that you're involved with or did they see what happened? We're like, this is not happening here. 
Yeah, so after after Swiss, um, there was some concerns that there was two stages in the Tour de France that had descents going straight into the finishes. So uh, we had a call with ASL and they ensured that they had um, these audio um, audio alert systems well before the corner to inform the rider and also catch nets to make sure that they'll catch the riders. So ASO did a very good part in this sense to make it better. And I, I think that just the public awareness for me trying to promote as much as possible um, on social media, I think this is this has really got the attention of the organisers to do a better job. So when we're talking about the Velta, you're, you're right, there was a lot better measures put in place. Kiko, the, the race director in control of the Velta, he's messaging me every day, sending photos. This is what I've done. I put these signs up. I put these barriers up. Is this okay? Please share it with the riders so they're aware. So there's a, I think just making this more aware on social media, this has really helped the organisers to try and prove that the race is more safe. And that's what we need. We need organisers to go out of to sort of um, take the extra effort to make races more safe. And this also gives confidence to the riders. And, and what, what we forget, and I, and I try and say, say this to a lot of people, when you're looking at Formula One, there's only a certain amount of circuits, not many, there's 20, I think. These, these Formula One drivers, they have computer games, they, they do the laps over and over and over and over, and they learn the corners, they know it off by heart, they can almost do it with eyes closed. In professional cycling, we have stages where riders have never done the descent before, never seen the descent before, and they just have no idea what's around the corner. And especially on corners like blind corners, how riders do these corners at high speed is that they're basically turning the corner, they look at the rider in front of them. If that rider is pedaling, then they know that it's straight afterwards. If the rider does not pedal, then they know that they still cannot pedal. If the rider brakes, then they know there's a danger in there. And they're basing everything on the information of the rider in front of them because the riders have no idea. A lot of the riders have never done the, 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 the stage they've done before. And this is the big difference. So this is why we need to take extra safety measures to, to make sure the riders are racing in safe conditions. There's obviously a lot more uh, weather-related problems now with extreme conditions, and especially this year, and especially in the Giro. And as someone that's ridden the Grand Tours so many times, should the Giro and the Vuelta swap places in the calendar? <laughs> I think they should. Um, I, I think um, I think they should. I don't know why they, they they don't want to, but to me it just makes sense that they that they should. Yeah, because it, it seems crazy that every year you've got this marquee race, which will say it will it will, it will the Giro will say the Giro is the best race in the calendar, obviously, but it's. It's an incredibly historic race with it goes over some beautiful passes that half the time they can't even use because it's snowing and it does just and obviously climate change being what what it is that pushes those extreme weathers much sort of deeper into the year so it does seem kind of crazy and when from again from your um, point of view now where you've got this more kind of overarching view of why things happen in cycling what is it that stops the Giro wanting to swap places with the Velta because it would seem more advantageous to the Giro's organisers to have it when the Giro can use all of the roads. And would the Velta mind being earlier in the season? Because once upon a time it was, right? Um, I, I don't want to answer this because I don't really know um, why they would not do that. Um, I know it was on talks and it was, uh, it was, it was um, I remember they were talking about it. The, the only I was I was invited to one meeting when they were discussing race calendar because there's going to be big changes in 2026 um, with the race calendars, and I just remember being in this meeting and there was this huge fight with um, 
uh, Triano in Paris Nice. And the, the, the issue was is that uh, Triano wanted to be a certain amount of days apart from Milan San Remo because both races are a build-up race to, to, to Milan San Remo. And I remember Paris Nice sort of got the, um, let's say, the better hand as, as a preparation race because of the days in between. Um, and, and these two organisers were just going at each other. And the, the, the race calendar is a, is, a, is, a, is a huge fight. For us, well, for me before, it looked very simple that, okay, you just change a few races. But I see that there's, when we're looking at race calendar, I was speaking to one organiser in the Czech tour. Um, he wants to make his race bigger. And he was telling me the reasons why he did not want to change is because of there's some tennis tournament. There's also some football uh, tournament happening also. And he's not just looking at other races. He's actually looking at other sports coming into competition with him on, on TV and that. So, you know, there's so many elements that, you know, we're not even thinking of why they were not doing, why they would not do such a change. But I'll ask a question and I can get back to you because, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a very valid question. Yeah, I spoke to um, the organiser of Ride London, which is obviously an amateur event, but there's the classic that goes with it. And he said something that you just wouldn't, I just didn't expect. He was like, when we plan the route, we also have to make sure we know what weddings are happening in those areas on that day because we can't, if we mess up somebody's wedding, that is just huge. They get so much shit from those, you know, obviously you would do, and then from the council, and it just makes it really difficult to do it again. So it's like, you know, this year we've had to plan a course around like 28 weddings. And you just think like the mind absolutely boggles at how difficult it is to put on a race. Well, not only that, um, when we're looking at course designs and some riders are like, why can't we just go straight into the city and finish it? Why do we have all these technical um, corners in the finish? And the organiser's response was, we have to make sure that we don't block access to hospitals. We must make sure we don't block access to police stations, fire stations, main roads to hospitals. And these are all key roads that are big, safe for cyclists to come through. And these are the main reasons why it's so technical when it comes to the finishes or why you come through some suburb in the back end and you sort of come out into the city centre and that. And a lot of these things riders do forget and a lot of the organisers, and I don't know if they just say it just to have their way, but it makes a valid point, but they do say that, you know, we actually don't really design the finishes. It's basically the council. The council says you can't use that road, that road, that road, that road, that road. If you want to finish here, you can take this complicated route or you can take this complicated route, you pick. And then that's where, you know, there's so many external parties that are involved in in course design. Yeah. Well, Adam, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. I did want to ask you one last question before you go. And I do really want to let you go because I think you've got a hell of a lot going on. And we are just getting in the way of that. But we had Nigel Mitchell, um, ex-Team Sky nutritionist on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And he said, and I said, oh, we're we're going to have Adam on. And he said, ah, ask Adam about veganism and riding as a vegan. Because Nigel did a cookbook, uh, The Plant-Based Cyclist. And he was like, this guy is he is an advert for how you can race at the top level on a vegan diet. Because that's something that we often talk about you know, in, in the kind of media and around training. It's like, can you win a grand tour if you don't eat steak sort of thing? <laughs> what's, your, what's your take on, on diet? Where are you at with it now? But you know, importantly, how, how did you race and how did that impact how you raced. You did mention the whole, you know, ketogenic fat burning sort of stuff, but was there a time where you were, you were strict vegan and you were still knocking out the grand tours? I, I am strict vegan diet. Um, and I'm glad you asked this. So we're going to make this another 20 minutes longer. So brilliant. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> okay. 
So when people say, can you be a top professional on a vegan diet? Victor Campanats right now is 99.99% vegan diet. Um, so he has been racing extremely well and he has his type of diet. Second point, all professionals rely on vegan food as energy. Pasta, rice, oats, sugar, glucose, sucrose, everything that's energy-based is vegan. This is all vegan food. So all energy bars are vegan, but the companies like to add some flavor, some chocolate in there, some milk in there so it tastes better. But the essential energy is all from vegan food. There's no eggs don't give you energy. Steak does not give you energy. So you, from a performance point of view, every athlete should be vegan from morning, especially to the end of the race and even after the race because if you're going to fill up your glycogen stores, you can't fill up your glycogen stores with fat or, or, or protein. It has to be some form of carbohydrate. So, um, yes, fat is an energy source also, but fat is extremely hard to digest. It takes slower to digest. It actually slows down the digestion of other foods. So you want to avoid fat. If you really want to race at a, a super optimal uh, performance level, you should have some form of slow carbohydrates in the morning because you want to fill up your, your glycogen stores as much as possible. And then during the race, you want fast carbohydrates, gels, vegan. Um, you can do it. You can do it very, very easily um, as a vegan racing at high level. There's, there's no reason for that at all. When I was talking about fat burning before, the idea of this is because glycogen is the most important energy source, every time you're training, you're burning fat and, and glycogen, and the percentages change depending on the zones you're in. So what you want to do is when the race is easy, you want to be as efficient as possible in your fat metabolism. So you're burning fat and you're not burning glycogen. So you do have to do some fat metabolism uh, training rides. You don't have to go on a keto, keto diet, but you can go into ketosis you can go into ketosis within three or four hours. If you have no breakfast and you go out and you ride 270 watts average for two to three hours, you'll go into ketosis very quickly. If you're on a keto diet, then yes, you have to follow a very strict protocol of protein and, and, and uh, fat ratio, and you've got to do that for a certain amount of days, and then you will go into ketosis. So you can be on a non-keto diet and go into ketosis and improve your fat metabolism. But yeah, there's, there's actually no reason to have any 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 dairy before a race if you have if you have cheese so some of the germans for example because they love their their, their schinken and, and cheese um in the mornings they have that you know having this type of meat is carcinogen so it's cancer causing so long-term effects is not going to be good um it's highly processed food so it's definitely not going to be good having the cheese is going to slow down your digestion of the food that you're eating in the morning the race which you don't want to do so there's no reason why you would have you know, any type of animal products in the morning. Um, and <clears throat> this is not just animal products, but even oil. You don't want oil in the mornings also because it's going to slow um, your digestive down. So there's no reason for that. Now, after the race for protein, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to push people to go for a plant-based uh, uh, protein source. Uh, but however, if there, there are very good options for, for protein for recovery after the race. But for the people that aren't aware, if you have high carbohydrate, you have an insulin spike. When you have an insulin spike, you become very anabolic. You need that for the protein to come in. So that's why every time you watch cyclists cross the finish line, you see them drinking in the olden days, Sprite, Fanta, things like this, because you've got to have your glycogen stores full 
before you can absorb the protein. Some of the better teams, they now have formulas, special drinks, because the, the Sprite is not the healthiest thing in the world to have, but <laughs> it does its job. It does its job. So um, uh, some teams have a, 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 the same type of sugar but without all the preservatives and colouring and, and all that crap in it. Um, but they do the same thing. They drink that and then 45 minutes have your protein source. And if you have protein, you must have three grams of lysine, and if you have that, as that's one one of the BCAs, the most important one to get into protein synthesis. And if you have enough of that, doesn't matter if it's plant form or meat form. I shouldn't say meat, but dairy form because it's whey protein. Um, then you go into protein synthesis, and then you have maximum rate of recovery. So you can do that on a plant based diet. But energy ways, energy source, vegan is. It's not vegan, it's sugar, and sugar is vegan, and dates, vegan, oats, vegan, rice, pasta, it's all vegan foods. So, yeah, you can do it easily, easily. Wow. I'll, I'll take that all day long. No, but it makes sense though, doesn't it? It really, it, it makes sense. It does. No, it, no, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And I do feel that it also, you know, it makes sense on lots of other, I'm not sure when, at what point you became vegan, decided to have a plant-based diet. Was it just a kind of performance thing or was it more, uh, you know, were there ethical connotations as well? <laughs> I, I got through like halfway through my career and I was like, okay, I, 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 I want to be the best I can. So I did a blood test and then I went through each marker and I was like, okay, where's my marker? What's the score? Where it should be? Okay, how do I improve that? And I was looking at uh, the diet to improve it. So I was like, okay, so, okay, HDL, what do I eat to, to improve it on and, and what do I not eat? So I changed my diet to alter that. LDL, same thing. And I went through every single marker that I was testing. Uh, testosterone, well, what improves testosterone, what doesn't, like every marker. The last thing was mercury. Right, I had mercury in my system, and I was speaking to the doctor. Why do I have mercury in my system? And he goes, Ah, there's mercury in seafood because you know the small fish, blah blah blah. So I was like, So I cut out seafood, and then I sort of got to the end, and I was like, You know what? Apart from honey, I'm on a vegan diet. I didn't know I was a vegan. I just I just slowly cut out the foods that affected every single marker, and it sort of pushed me towards this diet. And my blood markers went through the roof. I was it was really improved. Even my um, white blood cell count was so low, like it was off the charts. And I was speaking to the doctor, and he knew what I was doing, the team doctor. And I was like, "Yeah, but is this like why is my um, white blood cell count so slow?" He goes, "Because you eat so healthy." You have no inflammation in your body because your body is not fighting against the food you're putting into your body. When you eat processed food and unhealthy foods and things like that, then your white blood cell count increases and you're fighting. This is more about inflammation. So everything improved. And then I was like, okay, then I was worried because there's this stigma that vegans will just die, you know. <laughs> so then I started Googling, okay, can you be a vegan and and, um, and be a top athlete in that? And there was all these mixed responses. And you've got to be careful because a lot of the studies you read, you've got to see who funds the study. So if it's a dairy you know, it's a dairy industry funding a dairy study. You've got to be a bit skeptical on that. So I was making sure everything I was looking into was not funded by the, the wrong party. And yeah, everything went well. And then I was like, and then when you say, okay, now I'm a vegan. And then you look into the animal rights part because that's what's coming up. So I did it purely based on performance. And also, um, I want to live a long, healthy life. I don't want to live long and be crippled for the last 20 years. I want to, I want to be more active in, in the last 20 years of my life. So it's more health and performance-based. But then, then it sort of came like, okay, now I'm a vegan. What are vegans? And you look at the animal uh, rights and that, it's horrible what we do. Like really, like it is, it is if, you, if you look at some of the footage, what humans do to animals, um, I, I joked to my girlfriend, I was like, if aliens 
came to our planet and they saw what we did to animals, they would not be friends with us because for sure they would think we would do the exact same thing to them. Like the way we treat animals in, um, uh, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, I think it's called uh, Demomin, Demomin. It's uh, based on Australian um, uh, animal, uh, how they treat the animals and, and the agriculture okay. of the animals and everything. Um, it is like the, this is, you know, this is also the other aspect I look at. Like when you buy, let's say, chicken meat or, or meat and that, we have this perception that you're buying like a, like a strong animal, a healthy animal, and this is the best quality meat and that. But the reality is these are, you know, these are battery cage animals. They're, 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 they're really unhealthy. They pump them up with antibiotics just to keep them alive. And the way I looked at it is it's like going into a hospital, seeing someone pretty much on, on the hospital bed just surviving on their life. And that's the quality of meat you're eating. You know, you're not eating, you're not normally, the, the, the typical meat you buy at the supermarket is not some super healthy animal. It is an animal pumped up with antibiotics because I heard, no, I read that 80% of all antibiotics produced in America is to keep animals alive for food. So this is, this is what they're doing to them to, to just to keep them alive so people can eat them. And um, this is... This is not healthy food. This is really not healthy food. If, you, if you're doing, you know, if you have your own farm, you're doing everything correctly, that's something different. Um, so that's something very different. But to have the idea that you're eating healthy animals, this is, I think the average person, what they eat is, is not healthy in that sense. Absolutely. I, I've just got this image in my head of the same mechanic who told you, you can't use those handlebars. They're too narrow. They're from the girls' range. Also saying, Adam, eat this steak. And you're just being like, no, mate. <laughs> There are many reasons why I'm not going to do that. But Adam, thank you so much for joining us. As I say, absolutely fascinating. And I probably would go as far to say the most insightful person I've ever come across in cycling. I'm really pleased that you're doing what you're doing because I feel like the sport needs a lot of that. And I also feel like if you want to transition into being a top sports nutritionist or an aerodynamicist or a clothing designer, you know, you could probably do all of those things as well. So Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And hopefully I can come on again one day. Can you hear that, Will? I can. Do you know what that was? Christmas. Yes, that was Christmas in my hand. It was actually, do you know what? It wasn't sleigh bells. It was a tiny tambourine. Look at you, you bugged Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> and next time we come onto the podcast, it's going to be an electric tambourine. And everyone's going to go, what's he doing? Well, I liked his acoustic tambourine. And then it will turn out that everyone still loves me. Um, there you go. Well, so yeah, Bob Dylan, ladies and gentlemen. No, Adam Hansen, ladies and gentlemen. Um, wonderful, great interview. Wonderful guest. It's always interesting, I think, to talk to somebody who can see cycling from both sides um, and is generally really deep into cycling at the moment, especially with... Uh, listening to like the sort of gripes that professionals have because let's face it you know we all love to complain don't we when we go down the pub after work and so i bet there's low i'd love to be just like a fly on the wall in that whatsapp group of the stuff that people actually say around races i'd love to just see a transcript of that whole meeting of just what all the riders yeah. are saying I find that so interesting and i also love the idea that when they go and have kind of meetings about races you get representatives from each race and so you've got people like is it Tirreno where you win a trident and so there'd be someone who'd come along with a trident oh, yeah. and that would you know he was... They all have different things about them. It's actually Jason Momoa comes down. <laughs> I didn't know he's into cycling. He's a bit... He'd be, he would be a great track cyclist and a terrible climber. That's true. 
He's a really um he's a really big actor, isn't he? As in like size wise, if anyone doesn't know who he is. Yeah. 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 He is Aquaman. Was he in Game of Thrones? He was in Game of Thrones. He was Khaleesi's. Anyway, we this is a, that's another podcast that Will and I do, the Game of Thrones podcast. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, and I, I wonder who, I wonder which races no one wants to sit next to them at the table. They're just like, oh. Well, if they are all bringing mascots, would you want to sit next to or not want to sit next to the director of Trobro Leon, the uh, Brittany race, the, the winner, well, the best Breton rider gets given a baby pig. Oh, yeah. I thought he was going to say cheese, but it's a baby pig. There was a Columbia, was there was a Colombian race, I think. Is it a Columbia? I'm going to look this up. But basically, I remember reading about a race where somebody won a bull. And it was a, <laughs> a, so I think it was a Spanish race, maybe. Somebody won a bull and it was a Colombian rider, someone like Lucho Herrera. So this is like in the 80s. And they can't take the bull back home. I'm when they get when, yeah, when they get to cut, so the bull just sits in customs, and it's like this prize bull, and the boat basically forgets about it. Customs don't know what to do, so the bull just basically just like hangs around customs until it just gets really ill and dies. It's a really sad story, and the reason why you shouldn't give. Christ. I always think of that being a bit similar to those game shows of the nineties, where it was just like some bloke from like Nottingham, which is where you're from, actually, the most landlocked part of the UK. It is, it's yeah. like it's also where they filmed Bullseye. Is it? Well, there you go. It all ties in. So on Bullseye, on Bully, Jim Bowen be like, oh, you want a speedboat? And it's like, what do I want with a speedboat? I mean, it's cool, <laughs> but imagine that coming on the back of the flatbed. Where should we put it? I'll just put it outside. And then what? You've got a speedboat outside. You can't, I mean, I don't think you need to insure them, luckily, or have a license, but you haven't got a trailer. You're really far away from any like significant water mass. And then you're, but so it's that kind of thing. Um, people should really consider giving prizes and what they mean, even though it might seem lovely giving someone a pig when they've just won a cycling race is not really the one. You can't put that in your shower like a cobble, can you? Well, you could do, but you wouldn't be able to keep it there. No, or you wouldn't be able to shower. It could stay there. You could shower with a little baby pig. You could, yeah, if it was a little micro pig. Do micro pigs exist? Or was that one of those things where it's just small pigs and they were getting sold to people and then they grew into big pigs? Yeah, that could also be a thing. I'm not sure. I'm not deep into the world of micro pigs. I really feel like you should be, Will. That was what that pauses. That was me thinking about you being deep into the world of micro pigs. Anyway, I love the idea. Yeah, I love the idea. I also like this my micro tambourine, sleigh bells. And the reason I did that is because it is kind of Christmas. You're listening to this around Christmas time. And I thought that it'd be nice just to close out the year for you, Will, because you're really into your tech. So, Will is um, one of our tech team. Basically, he's one of our big web writers. He's our deputy web editor, as well as... I said I'm very large. He's huge. He's one of those people where you're like, I'm not really sure if you should be testing bikes because I feel like you skew various metrics by your sheer size. Like Jason... Famously, I skew metrics. <laughs> Famously, yeah. yeah. None other than Will metric skewing Strixon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> no, I wanted to close out with your views on basically the best things that you've seen in 2023 from your kind of very techy, all-encompassing web throne. And then I'll tell you some of mine. Well, I want to, I'd rather talk about the stuff that I've used rather than seen, because a lot of things I see I don't That's use. That's true. Which don't we all? That's life, you know? isn't it? If you think about it, you see more things in life. Just every, You see more things than you use. <laughs> That's so yeah. true. <laughs> Vastly more. Like a lot, a lot more. But then again, the questions are... All those cars that you see. Yeah, you're not using it. But then if you see a lamppost, right, and that lamppost is on and it's illuminating the pavement, are you using it? I'm using it, actually. Or is it only the person yeah. that turns it on that uses it? And when you're on your bike and you're cycling mm-hmm. down a road, if the road has a, a joining road, mm-hmm. 
are you using that road or using the road generally or are you not using that road? And if you use that road, are you paying road tax? I mean, I pay road tax on every road I use. I'm very honest like that. Because there's that little box, isn't there, at the bottom of every junction where you're supposed to put a penny in. <laughs> it's like there's something to declare. At the <laughs> yeah, who declares stuff? <laughs> Except for the guy that's like, I've got the bull. I've got the bull from that friend, that Spanish race. <laughs> and they're like, oh, why did you tell us? Now we're going to have to keep it here and it's going to die. Um, anyway. What I would declare is that my favourite product that I've used this year, outside of bikes, well, talk about bikes. The bike that I rode the most was the new Specialized Cirrus. I put a lot of a lot of miles in that. I had a great time. Which is a commuter bike, is it not? It is a commuter bike. And is I it a hybrid? Commuted on. It is what would be known as a. <laughs> I can't run my ass. A hybrid, and they uh, they put a little funny shape in, which you should Google if you don't know. I don't really want know how to describe it apart from the fact that it basically looks like there's a diamond. Ooh going from up from your bottom bracket not like 3d it's in like a 2d shape i enjoyed it i'm not sure the diamond was all the difference when it's got big Didn't tires hurt, a really long exposed seat post and the uh spongy what's tires? it called you did, rode the ruby uh, head no, shock the, uh, the future, future shock. shock it's got that a future one. shock that's pretty fun i didn't i didn't know yeah that. i mean so it's cool. great which because it's got all of those things it was quite hard to tell how much the actual little diamondy bit was doing but it was really good. I enjoyed it. Outside of bikes, and this is again, it sort of makes it seem like I'm more just riding bikes to ride bikes, which is actually really nice. Um, try it if you can. <laughs> um, uh, the product that I've used most this year is the Rafa Explore Gore-Tex jacket, which is not like a cycling tight jacket. It just wears like a normal raincoat, waterproof. I've worn it off the bike. And I wore it on the bike and it doesn't get me sweaty like a non-cycling jacket. So it was very useful for commuting or riding bikes just to ride bikes. Was it, is it good for like on the bike and off the bike and down the pub? Yeah. Yeah. I think I've worn it to a pub or two. Very nice. They should call it the Explortex, not the Explore Gore-Tex. That's what I'd go for. Yeah, I think they would if they had any control over the use of the Gore-Tex branding. Yeah, interesting. That is very true, isn't it? I think you know, you're legally obliged to be sticking the whole word on there. Anyway, well, that's lovely. Um, I didn't know that. What I didn't about know you? about the Cirrus, so thank you for illuminating me. What about me? Well, I mean, I'm I'm going to come at this from a, a, a terribly, a, an easy-to-attack angle by saying one of my favourite things was a very, very expensive bike, which I can't, I can't <sighs> defend how much it costs. Um, and you can guess, I'll tell you, it's a Moots Vamoots CRD. So it's a titanium bike. Uh, I can't remember what CRD stands for. Uh, something like complete race design, maybe. But it basically is a titanium bike with wide clearances and a pretty stiff frame and hidden cables, which you don't tend to get a lot of hidden cables on metal bikes. And it's a Moots. So it's made in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. It's desperately desirable, particularly if you're me and you grew up with some, I don't know, there's a little bike shop near me when I was a kid and they used to stop Moots and it was proper like, you know, window liquor kind of stuff, sticking your nose up against it and going like one day. So one day I got to test the Moots for um, a couple of months and it was just phenomenal. Um, I mean, yeah, would you like to guess how much it cost? Oh, was it? Custom geometry or no? It was not. I'm going to stick it at a solid. Are we talking what currency are we guessing in? Uh, we, 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 shall, we shall use the, the queen or the king's pound. Get it right, go on. Uh, I'm going to say £16,000. Not far off, not far off. It's a shade over 15, which is just astronomical. And the frame module, which 
frame module. Basically, <laughs> it makes it sound like a spaceship. It's not. Um, uh, basically, it's like handlebars. So headset, frame, fork, handlebars from MV, stem from MV. I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit technical for people and you've tuned out already. Basically, that's that's the best part of 10 grand alone. You haven't even got any wheels with that or a group set. It's just insane. And I can't defend it, but I did love it. It was just a phenomenal bike. And I also really love the Vittoria Corsa tires, which I've ridden in all of their guises now. The best thing about them is the new ones are, again, a bit techy. They're vulcanized, but they're also a high thread count, whereas normally tires that are vulcanized are a low thread count. That's right. Will's just giving me the little the little Spock V. I'm doing it too. It's quite hard, isn't it? Can you make it like scissors? Have you got that dexterity where you can pick? Oh, you yeah, can. I can do it with both hands as well. So, wow. Okay, so when we get sort of when we when we get overrun by the lobster people you'll be able to fit right i will live long and prosper you will anyway where was i oh yeah tires vulcanized tires so the best thing about them is their tan wool the vulcanizing process means that they don't stain with the tan walls as much as the old cotton walls do which is terribly vain but i've also just told you about a very expensive bike so i'm just a shallow cyclist that likes nice things so those are my two hot picks um probably I think yours, Will, were a bit more sane. And those are the choices that people should go away with this Christmas. But, you know, we're called cyclists. We're not called a specific, you know, we encompass many things. We do encompass many things, including micropigs, <laughs> a bit of chat about Game of Thrones and a wonderful guest. So if you have stuck with us this far, we wish you a very Merry Christmas um, as well as fading into the blackness um, because it's probably, yeah, it's coming up to sundown and... I don't know, he's trying to save some money this, this year, not not putting the lights on. Are you just going to use the Christmas tree in the corner for a kind of warm... That has been the play, actually, so far. Yeah. Okay, oh, lovely. But well, I'm not sure how much money that would save. No. And these days, lights, mostly they're LED bulbs, which are very, very, very low power, don't cost you very much at all. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, everyone, it's been a lovely year. Thank you for joining us, and see you in January. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how Join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then Join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of the Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine Podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first, and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now, you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version, 
So that's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40k in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now.